Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moira McLean, and tonight, as bi-weekly is tradition, I will be joined by the wonderful Sean Fay. Hi, Moira. I'm looking forward to spilling the tea, the political <laughs> tea, <laughs> Boston Tea Party vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we've, I think we should end the show there. We can't get any better than that. Um, but we will be talking about Rishi Sunak's attempt to play to the Conservative base. We will also be discussing tonight the ongoing plight of the junior doctors and the government's refusal to negotiate on favourable terms. And we'll be talking about French protesters storming a Louis Vuitton store. Personally, I'm more of a Givenchy person myself. First story. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has given an interview to Conservative Home, and as you'd expect, it was a pretty cosy affair, with the Tory membership submitting their questions in advance. I'd imagine a fair amount of vetting went on, because nothing too controversial came up. And we all know that Sunak isn't that popular with the membership, who love Boris Johnson as much as Nadine Dorries, and who even preferred Liz Truss to the current Prime Minister. Now, the ghost of Boris Johnson made an early entrance with Conservative at Home editor Paul Goodman asking Sunak this. Some, not all, but some say, look, Rishi Sunak, you were instrumental in the fall of Boris Johnson. Um, he was elected with a big majority. He had a mandate from the voters that, let's be frank, you don't have yet, may not have, who knows. He had a mandate from the Conservative Party, which you don't have either because you didn't win the leadership election in the summer. What's your answer to those Conservatives and Conservative and other voters who have a problem with trust? Well, I think we addressed all of this last summer and we talked about it extensively. I, you know, I made the decision I made uh, for reasons that were personal to me. And you know, there was a fundamental difference about economic policy, and that was something that I was mm. clear about at the time, and ultimately that's why I had to resign, and that was that. And I was pretty clear and transparent about it uh, at that moment. What happened thereafter was not my doing, right? And you know, lots of other, um, uh, we won't go, there's no point re-going over all of that, quite frankly, because mm. I think we've got to, as a party, look forward. Is the door closed to Boris Johnson coming into your cabinet? I, you know, I, I think I, I got I, I asked about this in the past. Also, I didn't comment on you know cabinet appointments. You wouldn't expect me to do that with Boris or anybody else, for that matter. We've got a great team. You know, we've got a great team, and they're focused on delivering. But more broadly, you know, it's great that we've got former prime ministers who want to contribute still to public life and and feel that they can do that. That's a good thing, and we should welcome that. Have they got a great cabinet team? I'm not really that sure about that. Maybe Sunak should leave the door open to getting Johnson out on the campaign trail if the Tories are still mobilising an election next year. Now, another topic that came up was hot favourite for wedge issue of the year. With Keir Starmer having recently come down against trans women, Sunak needed to up the stakes. Here's Paul Goodman again. Sir Keir said recently that 99% of women, I quote, of course, haven't got a penis, he said. What percentage would you put it at? I th <laughs> so, on a slightly different point of view to him on this, and I, look, I've been very clear that when it you know, on this on this topic, it's a hundred percent. Yeah, then. of course. But I think the first thing to say is that we we should always have compassion and understanding and tolerance for those who are thinking about their gender. Of course we should, right? We're a compassionate and understanding society, and we will always remember that. Uh, but when it comes to these issues uh, of uh, protecting women's rights, women's spaces, I think the issue of, of biological sex is fundamentally important when we think about those questions. I've said that repeatedly, and that's why I talked about the Equalities Act 
last year. It's why Secretary of State Kemi written to the, um, the Commission. They've responded with some advice about about the Equalities Act and how it should think about biological sex. We're in the process of looking at that. But as a general, as a as a general, you know, as a general kind of operating principle for me, biological sex is vitally, fundamentally important to these questions. We can't forget that, uh, and that's why we need to make sure, particularly when it comes to women's health, women's sports, or indeed spaces, that we're protecting those rights in those places. Compassionate and understanding society that insists on consistently talking about women and penises. That sounds very compassionate and understanding to me. Sunak also mentioned the EHRC there, who recently advised the government to change the Equalities Act in a way that defines woman and biologically female. We will be talking about that organisation and its crumbling infrastructure later in the show after it has been captured by Tory plants. Now, though, take a look at this. Look familiar? The Tories have been plastering that slogan, cribbed straight from Australia's inhuman migration policy, on every lectern short enough to keep Sunak's face in. But it seems that that policy, which was one of Sunak's key pleasures at the beginning of the year, isn't going so well. Here's Goodman again. On to a different matter, namely um, the pledge that stands out in some ways from the others, um, small boats. Yeah. Uh, you were pledged to stop the boats, not reduce the number, uh, not bring the number down, actually to stopping them. Will you have done that by the time of the next election? Look, I've always also said that this is not something that is, A, easy. It is a complicated problem where there's no sing single simple solution um, that, will, that will fix it. And I've also said it won't happen overnight. Won't happen overnight. And it won't happen ever until we've established safe routes for asylum seekers. In the same chat, Sunak let slip a particularly interesting detail. Remember his decision last year to scrap compulsory national targets of building 300,000 new homes a year in England. At the time, media reported that it was a Tory rebellion, an MP one, that saw the targets ditched. But Sunak has now suggested a different reason. Why should young people vote for the party of capitalism? when they've got so little stake and capital of their own. Are you talking specifically about home ownership? Or home ownership is the prime example, yeah. but you might talk about shares, you might talk about anything. Yeah. The concentration of wealth uh, in this country, it's frankly, with my generation, not younger people, why should they vote Conservative yeah. in May? Well, let's, let's talk about home ownership specifically, because I think that is the, probably the, the best example of what you're talking about, Paul. And I think, first of all, you know, I, I remember what it was like to get the keys to my first flat. That's a special moment in everybody's life. Everyone wants to own, the vast majority of people want to own a home. And that's something that we as a party have always been, are, and will continue to be incredibly supportive of. Now, we have to acknowledge, yes, that has been, as you say, right? That, that dream feels like it's out of reach for too many people. Part of our job is to try and help uh, correct that. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. So I think we should be honest about it. It's not something that you can, you can fix overnight. But I think we are making progress. And I spent to a, a lot of the time over the summer, actually, when I was talking to so many of our members, so many of our councillors about our planning system and their views on it. And what I heard consistently, particularly from our councillors um, and our members, was what they didn't want was a, a nationally imposed, top-down set of targets imposed, uh, telling them what to do. 
Goodman asked a pretty pertinent question there, one worthy of Navarra Media, actually. Why should young people vote for the party of capital when they have so very little? Sunak tellingly isn't able to come up with an answer because the answer is you shouldn't vote for the party of capital. But he did give the rationale for his U-turn on house building targets. And apparently it's conservative members and councillors. Quite how they represent the majority of the country or the young people Goodman was specifically asking about is unclear. Or according to the Times, Tory members represent less than 1% of the electorate and over 60% are older than 55. That is compared to only 26% of the general UK population. Plus, they're predominantly middle-class men who live in the southeast of the country. But yes, this group definitely reflects the general public's attitude towards home-building targets. Sean, Rishi Sunak decided to talk about small boats, um, women with penises and... Also, house building targets that apparently the Conservative membership don't want and that for the rest of the country do. Does he have any strategy at all or is he just a management bod out of his depth? Uh, no, I don't think he has a strategy at all. I think what we're seeing is uh, a flailing government trying to like uh, grasp at anything that they think will work. I do think that this question about um, the way that young people are voting, obviously, uh, it's sort of famously that millennials are not getting more conservative with age, which is something that um, the Tory party in this country and conservatives around the world have always really relied on. But the reason that tends to happen is not just because you naturally become small minded or, um, I don't know, selfish with age, more just that you tend to become richer and that's not happening <laughs> to millennials. Um, so uh, so there is there is a real problem there in terms of um, creating a narrative of optimism. I mean, even Thatcher, I guess, for some aspirational working class, people had a narrative of optimism, of, of uh, social mobility. There's none of that here. Um, he's wildly unpopular. He's, you know, he's gratuitously wealthy. And I think a lot of the public find him gratuitously wealthy and out of touch. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think what we're seeing is, uh, really these sort of like hallmarks of a, of a deeply reactionary government in its sort of increasing vitriol, uh, towards minorities. And as I think I have said on this program before, the two minorities in the UK right now that seem to stand out are trans people and um, migrants, people who mig are migrating to this country, usually fleeing war, persecution. Um, and yeah, I think we're just seeing, we're going to see, unfortunately, in the lead up to the next general election, which hopefully they will lose, increasing use of scapegoats uh, and increasingly desperate measures. Speaking of increasingly desperate measures, the junior doctor strike has now moved into its third day. And while the industrial action is causing delays in NHS treatment, it's also making the government look ever more unreasonable. The doctors' union, the BMA, has invited the government to enter into talks through the arbitration service ACAS. BMA leader Philip Banfield told Times Radio this. I've been talking to ACAS about the possibility of breaking down some of the preconditions that have been put on the juniors by this government to try and get this dispute resolved as quickly as possible. The fundamental, fundamental issue here is that we have a Secretary of State that doesn't seem to appreciate that pay for doctor, junior doctors has gone down in real terms. The BMA's invitation to negotiate via ACAS comes after Health Secretary Steve Barclay has repeatedly refused to negotiate with the junior doctors unless they substantially lower their demand for pay restoration. That demand amounts to a 35% increase in order to restore real wages to 2008 levels. 
For their part, the doctors have argued that they're willing to negotiate, but only face-to-face with the government. And now the body that represents NHS trusts across the country has weighed in two. The NHS Confederation has written to the government and to the BMA, asking both to enter into talks with the arbitration service ACAS. In their letter, the Confederation write this. While we await what we hope is inevitable eventual negotiation, our members are questioning how much damage will be caused along the way. Health leaders want both sides to do everything within their power to find some common ground as soon as possible, and it seems that the current approach is not working here. We now are urging you both to invite ACAS, the Advisory Conciliation and Arbitration Service, or another mediation service to support negotiations and help bring this industrial action to a close. With both sides having seemingly incompatible preconditions for negotiation, we believe this option should be explored as a matter of urgency to help bring both sides to the table and find a way forward. As always, we stand ready to support in any way we can to bring an end to this industrial action and allow the NHS to get on with the good work that patients need. I wish I had ACAS in my last breakup. So what was the government's response to the invitation? Radio 4's Today programme put that question to Minister for Policing Chris Philp and braced herself for a car crash that really needed a junior doctor. The BMA have made a shift, haven't they? They're not talking about the 35% as much as they are talking about a credible offer. They have said we're ready to sit down with ACAS. ACAS say they're ready. They just need all the parties. And that means the government. Why not just say yes in a strike where lives are at stake? That's not the case in every strike, but it is in this one. Yes to ACAS. It's, it's, it's not something that involves you having to agree anything. It's, it's a process. It's a discussion. Well, that is a very recent uh, change in position. That wasn't the BMA Junior Doctors Committee's position until very, very recently. I think it would also be constructive if they would just suspend the strikes while talks take place. And if they're willing to do that, then I think the Secretary of State's door is very much open. And we demonstrated, uh, we took exactly that approach with the relevant trade unions in relation to ambulance paramedics and nurses. A a, a reasonable offer was made that is now being balloted on. So there's a very clear way of getting this resolved that we use just a few weeks ago and we'd encourage the BMA Junior Doctors Committee to follow they've, the same process because our door is open. They've shifted. As you have acknowledged, there's been a different stance from them as of yesterday. ACAS are ready. Why can't you just say yes to talking to them in that well, setting? Well, well, I think if they, if they, obviously I'm not the health secretary, if they put that suggestion to the health secretary directly and express a willingness and, 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 a, and a willingness to um, suspend the, the the extremely damaging strike action that some hospital leaders say is putting patient safety at risk, then the Secretary of State's door uh, is open. So I would urge them to make formal contact, uh, not through the media, but directly with the Secretary of State to, to um, put their um, proposal to the Secretary of State. But I would suggest that should include suspending the current strike action while talks take place. So the government's line is they won't even enter arbitration about how a negotiation might take place unless the doctors give up all their leverage by suspending the strikes and also put a lower offer on the table. And by this afternoon, nothing had changed with the Department for Health issuing this statement. The Health and Social Care Secretary has been clear his door is open and he remains willing to engage constructively, but that a demand of 35%, which would involve some junior doctors receiving a £20,000 pay rise, is unreasonable in the current economic context. 
We've been engaging with ACAS during this dispute and remain open to considering whether there is a role for them to help us reach the desired outcome, an end to strike action, which is putting patient safety at risk. But our position remains that the Junior Doctors' Council needs to significantly reduce its demand for a 35% pay increase and pause action for formal talks to begin. And that will not change. Sean, why is the government so unserious about finding a resolution to this conflict? Uh, well, I think they just uh, don't want a resolution. I think one of the things they've been hoping for this whole time is that public opinion will turn on junior doctors. Um, that certainly, I think, has been a, str a strain running through this um, entire dispute. Uh, the idea that if they sort of long it out for enough time, people will get sick of not receiving care and will not direct their anger at the government, but at junior doctors. I also think... Uh, fundamentally there is an ideological block here right is that they don't fundamentally believe that junior doctors are worth a pay increase um because there is you know <laughs> most of the people in the tory party probably uh access healthcare privately um there is a sort of underlying ideological belief that healthcare isn't something that should be um free to all at the point of use and there and that this health service um that is free to all at the point of views that we have in the UK isn't something really the Tories have ever wanted. And I think especially now, um, they're very uh, disinclined to um, actually take negotiations with junior doctors seriously because they're not interested in the end result, which is a healthy functioning NHS with staff morale high and, you know, robust, good public health care. It's just not it's not the Tory way. It never has been. It isn't the Tory way. They prefer paying through the nose for substandard care. Now, the doctor's strike isn't just about pay and conditions, as Sean pointed out. It's also about the collapsing health service. And the number of people on hospital waiting lists has hit an all-time high. The Independent reports this. An estimated 7.22 million people were waiting to start routine hospital treatment at the end of February, up slightly from 7.21 million in January, and the highest total since records began in 2007, according to figures from NHS England. According to the House of Commons Library, vacancies in the NHS are now at an unprecedented level. In September last year, there were nearly 140,000 vacancies for workers of various kinds in the NHS. There were nearly 10,000 spots for doctors. That's the light green area at the bottom of this graphic. And around 50,000 nursing vacancies, the dark green area in the middle. And for other workers, which includes vital health workers who are neither doctors nor nurses, there are around 80,000 vacancies. That is the purple area taking up the top of the graph. But did you know there are actually thousands of nurses, doctors and other health workers already in Britain, but they're unrecorded. And that is because they're trapped in a broken asylum system. The Doctors Association of the UK has called for the government to get its act together saying this. It is a clear failure of government thinking to not allow qualified individuals who are present in the country and willing to work, but are prevented from doing so due to bureaucratic failures. Nobody benefits from the situation, neither the public nor the individuals caught in this traumatic set of circumstances. That comes off the back of a report this weekend that thousands of doctors, nurses and other health workers are stuck in the asylum system. Sean, this is a ridiculous situation where it seems the government would rather have people trapped in an asylum system that they say claim 
cost them millions of pounds, then let them work in the NHS where they are desperately needed. How has it happened? What does it tell us about priorities? Well, I think it tells us a lot about what the um, what the asylum system is designed to do, which I think that there's a large part of it that is, th- is theatre, right? It's theatrical, is that uh, as we... Uh, become an increasingly xenophobic, hostile nation state. Um, to to go hand in hand with that needs to be the theatre of this of the border of the of the um, of the asylum system. That it's difficult, it's hard that we are punishing people for claiming asylum for migrating to this country, and in order to do that is to create like a web of bureaucracy that is um, dense, is uh, designed to be difficult to circumvent, is designed to privilege rich uh, immigrants uh, rather than um, the poorest. And I think, you know, when you combine that with, as I mentioned before, a real lack of interest in actually um, uh, improving the conditions within the NHS and uh, making sure that it's staffed properly. You've got basically two different um, prongs, if you like, of Tory ideology interacting here so that you have this bizarre situation in which there are plenty of people qualified in Britain already to do this, you know, this highly specialist work, uh, yet we have a system that basically prevents them from doing it and no interest in simplifying that or, um, I don't know, just applying. It's not just about failure of common sense. It's actually about two different ideological, um, I don't know, yeah, permutations of of, uh, Tory policy interacting would be my assessment. I think it's really fascinating to watch the evolution of the Tory party go from sort of we're the grown-ups, we're in charge, we can do this, to this this post-2016, 2019 intake when competence rules the roost and above all they just want to continually shoot themselves in the foot again and again and again in pursuit of this bizarre ideological uh, goal that doesn't even make sense to them. It's just doing rubbish politics for the sake of rubbish politics. Next story. Are the French here to play? Absolument pas, and je suis désolé for my terrible pronunciation. Protesters have made that anger at the French government known in towns and cities across France for weeks now. There have been nationwide protests, occupations of buildings, and widespread civil disobedience. Strikes by French bin collectors left Parisian streets heaving with rubbish for three weeks in March. Some 25,000, no, 25,000, some 2,500 fires, I don't know who's counting this, have been lit since mid-March and around 300 public buildings vandalised. And national transport infrastructure from ports to trains and buses to planes have at times been all but halted. The state has met the protesters with violence, calling in unprecedented numbers of police to quell the disruption. They've been criticised for their heavy-handed tactics, which have resulted in around 1,200 arrests. And all of this came amid a cost-of-living crisis and after President Emmanuel Macron bypassed Parliament to push through pension reforms, unilaterally raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. Macron's bill is now in the process of being examined by France's Constitutional Council, the country's highest legislative authority, and they're due to rule on its legality on Friday, a big day. And in a fresh national day of action, some 600,000 protesters have now taken to the streets again to let the council know their views. 
So far, striking rail workers have invaded the Paris headquarters of luxury brand empire LVMH. Its chief executive is Bernard Arnault, who recently became the richest man in the world. It owns luxury brands like Louis Vuitton, Moet, Christian Dior, and Givenchy. Basically, Versailles vibes. And the government is confident that the Constitutional Council will rule in their favour. No doubt it will. So, so far, Macron has refused to meet with union leaders to discuss the reforms. Speaking from the Netherlands, where he's currently visiting slash hiding a little lair, Macron said this. I'm proud of the French social model and I defend it. But if we want to make it sustainable, we have to produce more. We have to reindustrialize the country. We have to decrease unemployment. And we have to increase the quantity of work being delivered in the country. This pension reform is part of it. We have to increase the quantity of work being delivered in the country. But for who, whom and by who? Sean, what could we, the British people, learn from the French? Apart from how to like, you know, I don't know, look chic in just neutral tones. Um, yeah, Versailles vibes indeed. Let them eat Louis Vuitton clutches. Um, I think, well, we do have a lot to learn from the French. I think uh, we could even learn a crumb um, of their tradition, I guess, of protest. I mean, it's that classic. I think there are lots of, by lots of metrics, right? The French um, have uh, a lot better living conditions than a lot of their European siblings, counterparts. And uh, one would perhaps uh, infer that that is because they're willing to kick off uh, any willing moment. I mean, what we are seeing now is, is Macron for now is not backing down. But what you have to remember is that this willingness to protest, how many ideas get killed before they're even floated to the French public because they know that they're going to kick off. And I actually think that what we see in this country is unfortunately a state, a government that is uh, for too long has been uh, shown that uh, they can pretty much do anything and uh, there won't be unfortunately, um, much protest. And of course, it's about the sheer numbers. There are, of course, many um, civil disobedient activists, um, direct action activists on the left in this country. But because they are um, smaller in number, they're extremely vulnerable. The state comes down on them hard. It always has. Uh, and that obviously wrecks lives um, and uh, can destroy, you know, reputations, careers, et cetera, mental health. And so it's a, it's a tough thing here to be a sort of uh, activist against state overreach. Whereas in France, there is, you know, egalité and solidarité. <laughs> These French accents, Moya. <laughs> You are actually a bit French, so I feel like I can get away with it more than my French accent is terrible. Um, an interesting side note is actually that Bernard Arnault is now the richest man in the world thanks to the demand for luxury goods. Sean, you are a luxury gal. What does it say about our current moment that someone like Bernard Arnault and his LVMH empire has overtaken the tech gods? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you for calling me a luxury gal. Um, first of all, I mean, the thing is, is that I think, uh, the, the fashion industry, just like many other industries, is just this huge globalization conglomeration. Um, I think the, the business of fashion, 
um, you know, has huge ethical questions over it that uh, essentially what is happening is that pretty much all major fashion houses gradually over time are being acquired into ever, ever larger structures. Um, and to be honest, I think all that shows is um, that there is a huge amount of money uh, in the fashion and beauty industry. There always has been. Um, and that, you know, like every other um, industry, there are parasitic billionaires willing to skim off the profits of other people's labor. I think it is interesting, like on the left, that we tend to um, maybe turn, yeah, t turn our eyes towards other industries, perhaps like tech um, and industry. But I think the fashion industry, you know, is one of those uh, fascinating things where actually, um, I don't know, there there is an artistic creative side to it, but the business of it uh, very much is the domain of um, extremely wealthy um, people to what I would consider an unethical degree. Next story. All is not well at the Equality and Human Rights Commission. According to a Vice exclusive, an internal battle is raging over the organization's, quote, transphobic direction. And this has led to some, quote, massive resignations, some taking place as recently as this week. Reporter Ben Hunt has unearthed that seven senior officials have quit the Equalities and Human Rights Watchdog in recent months. And they include an EHRC board member, known as a commissioner, an executive director, four directors, including two legal directors, and a committee member. You know what they say, to lose one committee member is misfortune, to lose a commissioner, well. Previously, staff have resigned from the watchdog in protest at the guidance regarding transgender people and their rights, but never figures the senior. And these departures at the top of the HRC's tree are directly linked to its most controversial decision yet. In early April, the watchdog made public a letter it had written to the government backing the crusade of Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch to change the 2010 Equality Act. Badenoch wants to make it that the protections currently afforded according to a person's legal sex would instead be based on their biological sex, meaning trans people living a different sex than the one they were assigned at birth would lose a huge sweep of relevant legal protections, along with being permanently misgendered by the state. You would think an equalities and human rights watchdog that bills itself as independent from the government might be opposed to any plan that threatened to whisk away key human rights from a vulnerable minority group, but... Alas, no. Here's what the EHRC said in response to Badenoch's request for guidance. We've come to the view that if sex is defined as biological sex for the purposes of the Equality Act, this would bring greater legal clarity in eight areas. On balance, we believe that redefining sex in the Equality Act to mean biological sex would create rationalisations, simplifications, clarity and or reductions in risk for maternity service providers and users of other services, gay and lesbian associations, sports organisers and employers. It therefore merits further consideration. We debunked this EHRC advice at length in a previous show, but safe to say that this performance of pretending to be an independent body that is responding carefully and objectively to the government's concerns around the Equality Act is exactly that, a pantomime. For months, the EHRC has fielded allegations of increasing transphobia within its ranks. The appointment of Baroness Kishwar Faulkner as chairwoman of the EHRC in 2020 saw, quote, multiple meetings set up between Faulkner and anti-trans organisations fighting specifically to have trans women excluded from single sex spaces. And previous vice reporting on leaked emails and documents revealed Faulkner was meeting representatives from the likes of the LGB Alliance and Fair Play for Women. 
The current deputy of the AHRC Commission is also Alistair Henderson, a lawyer who represented claimant Kira Bell in an attempt to prevent children under the age of 16 who were considering gender reassignment from accessing reversible puberty-blocking medication. With equalities champions like that, who needs enemies? But the entire top shelf of the HRC is stacked with right-wingers. Our very own Stephen Methan penned this for Navarra Media last September. As Women's and Equalities Minister, Liz Truss was responsible for commissioner appointments. She stacked the EHRC with right-wing ideologues. One, David Goodhart, described BLM protesters as statistically naive and said the Windrush scandal shouldn't halt the Tories' hostile environment policies. Another, Jessica Butcher, stated that women should not go to cry to someone about how you might have been gender discriminated against, but take ownership of how you put yourself forward and to mould yourself, change yourself to the circumstances as required. Christ alive, taking a lean into a whole new level. The EHRC, despite its profession to the contrary, is not independent of the government it is meant to hold to account. Its commissioners are appointed by the government. But it is fascinating that so much of its energy is now going into stripping rights from trans people. Sean, why does this particular right-wing institutional capture have such an obsessive focus on trans rights? The real key to answering that is the fact that they're just being lobbied a lot on trans rights. Um, you mentioned some of the organisations there. I would say that um, the organisation Sex Matters, which was founded by a number of notable self-described gender critical feminists in the last couple of years. You can go to their website, snappy little name, Sex Matters. Um, <laughs> not as fun as it sounds. And um they pretty much are transparent about what they're campaigning for. They set up a, a petition, a parliament. Um, UK government and parliament petitioned to try and reach 100,000 signatures for precisely this um, this campaign point, which was to um, to redefine sex in the Equality Act to mean biological sex, which, by the way, I just want to say uh, is unpracticable. It's a complete nightmare in and of itself. And I think uh, uh, I'm sure it's been covered on this programme, but Helen Belcher, who is a trans um, campaigner, uh, and a Liberal Democrat will forgive Helen that for, for now, um, put this to um, staff of the EHRC uh, recently. It was like, how are you going to define biological sex? They had no answer and pointed out that this is out of step with other human rights watchdogs in, in countries that we might consider, um, uh, I don't know, neighbours and friends of the UK. Um, but yeah, they're being lobbied pretty hard. And it's pretty obvious, you know, what the goals are. This one has not become as a surprise. And so, yeah, so I think what for people watching at home who may not be aware of this, there's just a very committed lobby now in this country um, with a number of campaign points about basically, um, in, I don't know, moving towards an ideological position in law that trans particularly women are not women and therefore should be treated basically as men for all purposes. That would be their ideal goal. I think they're quite transparent about that. These people give interviews all the time. The other thing is, is that internally, and you just, you touched on this Moya at the um, EHRC is, uh, I mean, like, yeah, I think Baroness Faulkner herself has made her own ideological stance very clear. I think she's just in, immensely receptive to a lot of these arguments. She is meeting with these organizations. And so you only need a, a few key individuals uh, at uh, such a sort of like organization, really, for it to start, um, I guess, having somewhat of a bias, let's say that. Quick warning uh, for the next story, we will be mentioning child sexual abuse. 
Home Secretary Suella Braveman is on a mission, and that mission is to demonstrate that people from ethnic minority backgrounds can also say incredibly racist things, and she's doing amazing, sweetie. Most recently, Braverman made some incredibly inflammatory remarks about British Pakistani men and child sexual exploitation. What we've seen is a practice whereby uh, vulnerable white English girls, um, sometimes in care, sometimes who are in uh, challenging circumstances, being uh, pursued and raped and drugged and harmed by gangs of uh, British Pakistani men who've worked in child abuse rings or networks. Now that claim has sparked ongoing outrage, not least because none of the evidence around group-based child child sexual exploitation supports Braveman's claims that it's perpetrated mostly by British Pakistani men. As it has been widely noted, the Home Office's own 2020 research found that the majority of child sexual abuse gangs are made up of white men under the age of 30. That didn't stop Braveman trucking on, though. And now, a leading Tory peer has condemned what she calls the Home Secretary's racist rhetoric. Former Conservative Party chair Baroness Walsey has been on a mini-media tour attempting to combat some of the damage wrought by what she refers to as Braveman's shock-jock language. Writing in The Guardian on Wednesday evening, Walsey said this... Braveman's own ethnic origin has shielded her from criticism for too long. Many people within the Conservative Party have been hesitant to call out what has been staring members in the face. They struggle to hold an ethnic minority MP to account in the same way they would a white parliamentarian. This needs to change. If we're going to start having honest conversations, let's start by saying this. Black and brown people can be racist too. Warsi goes on to point out this. Braverman is a trained barrister. If somebody who is trained to be an advocate cannot communicate on serious issues in a thoughtful, reasonable, evidence-based way, that's an issue of incompetence. Whether this consistent use of racist rhetoric is strategy or incompetence, however, doesn't matter. Both show she is not fit to hold high office. Criticising Braverman's language is not about shutting down important debate about policy or being culturally sensitive. It's about demanding a Home Secretary who makes policy announcements that are accurate and based on fact and evidence, which Braverman has failed to do. Not fit to hold high office. Pretty unequivocal stuff. Walsey doubled down on her criticism Thursday morning while speaking to BBC News. I've had to warn my son that if people start swearing and shouting to just remove himself from the situation to avoid it escalating into an attack, why should I be having these conversations with my son, she told BBC News. I've had to tell my dad that if you go to the mosque, don't walk home, we need to have someone taking him and bring him back every day. In that piece, Baroness Walsey said that Suella Braveman's racist rhetoric meant that she was worried about potential attacks upon South Asian individuals. Now, interestingly... In 2012, Baroness Walsey caused some controversy of her own when she spoke about child sexual exploitation, very hard to get out, in Rochdale. Then she was serving as Tory co-chair and she told the Evening Standard this. There is a small minority of Pakistani men who believe that white girls are fair game. We have to be prepared to say that. You can only start solving a problem if you acknowledge it first. In mosque after mosque after mosque, this should be raised as an issue so that anybody who is remotely involved should start to feel the community is turning on them. Communities have a responsibility to stand up and say, this is wrong, this will not be tolerated. Now at the time, Orsi's comments were spun a bit by the press as putting race at the heart of child sexual exploitation. She claimed she was trying to be nuanced about it and acknowledge a problem. 
She was criticized by, however, by organizations like End Violence Against Women Coalition, who said that an excessive focus on ethnicity in cases of exploitation rather than the exploitation itself is misleading. Very, very fair and accurate. But just over a decade later, and Walsey is making similar critiques of Braveman's language. Is she wrong, though? Sean, what do you make of Baroness Walsey's apparent change in perspective? I mean, Saida Warsi has confused me for the best part of 13 years. I'm always like, hun, do you not know what party you're in? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I find her mystifying. I have to preface my answer with that. Um, I, I wonder, I'm just speculating here, I think at a time when she was on the rise in uh, during the sort of Cameron era of the of the well, conservative-led coalition government, she perhaps somewhat naively um, believed, and clearly still does because she remains in the party, in a kind of soft conservatism. It's that kind of same thing as when Theresa May said they were no longer, I can't remember, to paraphrase the bad guys, um, when David Cameron was um, the champion of gay marriage and so on. This idea of a kind of socially progressive but economically conservative, um, conservative party. I think she had a lot of um, hope invested in that model of conservatism in the UK um, perhaps 13 years ago. And of course, what she has probably seen in her time is uh, an increasing um, lurch to the right, not just on economics, but on social policy, including around race too. She chaired um, she has constantly been um, trying to draw attention to Islamophobia within the Conservative Party. Um, she is aware, obviously, that it has racist tendencies. And uh, and I think perhaps now that she is so removed from, um, I mean, real power within the centre of, of where the, of gravity within the Tory party, if you like, she perhaps has cause for reflection. And maybe as well, you know, we just all with age we and experience, we reflect on things. And it's not particularly you know, wise necessarily to be peddling racist rhetoric that sooner or later will be in the hands of people who will lump you in with um, with the people that you are slurring. And that is the case if you are a British Asian Tory politician and you are um, furthering racist tropes about British Asians. Like, of course, sooner or later, that is going to rebound, if not on you personally, on your family members, on men in your family. So perhaps she's just got eyes and, you know, a bit of common sense about where this can all go. And um, and she doesn't have that thirst for power um, that she maybe once had and that Suella Braverman currently does. Suella Braverman's thirst for power is going to take us all down, I fear, and it will be a long time before she actually sees the consequences of becoming a model minority in service of a racist institution. However, on that note, thank you very much, Sean, for joining me tonight and lending your intellect and your chicness, especially to the Louis Vuitton story, where you know that I'm out of my depth. <laughs> thank you for having me and thank you for the French accent, Moya. <laughs> it really tickled me. <laughs> well, uh, merci beaucoup for everyone for watching this evening and come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm with Michael and Aaron. For now, you have been watching Navara Media. Bonsoir. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.